You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. We need to shorten the distance between us and the people who are suffering. And that's about relationship. That's about going to what a friend of mine calls the listening posts. Go to the jails, go to the courtrooms, go to the streets and listen and look and learn from the people who are vulnerable and the people who are suffering under the current systems. And they will tell their stories. And as you listen to their stories, you'll learn how the system is structured against them. This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We're trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. Today we welcome Dr. Peter Gatke, my friend and former teaching colleague. I met Dr. Gatke when he was a professor in the Religion and Philosophy Department at Christian Brothers University. He currently serves as Vice President of Academic Affairs Dean at Memphis Theological Seminary in Memphis, Tennessee. This seminary is one of the most vibrant ecumenical seminaries in the country, and I say that because it offers top-notch scholarship and piety, along with justice and attention to diversity. Along with being the academic leader at MTS, he's the founder of Manor House, a place of sanctuary and respite, where guests, some of whom are homeless, are able to relax, engage in conversation, take showers, and receive resources to sustain them, like community, and clothing. Just to give you a snapshot of Pete's background, he was raised in Rochester, Minnesota, went to Catholic schools where he was taught by Franciscan nuns and Benedictine uh, monks. While a graduate student at Emory, Pete connected to the Open Door community in Atlanta. It is now in Baltimore. The Open Door at the time was run by Reverend Ed Loring and the late Murphy Davis. It was a Presbyterian Catholic worker community living and working with people on the streets, in prisons, and working for help for folks on death row. His writing includes a co-edited piece, Doing Right and Being Good, Catholic and Protestant Readings and Christian Ethics, as well as two books about the Open Door community. Welcome, Pete. It's good to have you here. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about you and your ministry? Well, I think you summed it up pretty well, Barbara. Thank you for that generous introduction, and it's good to be with you all today. You've talked about the idea of radical hospitality. Can you give the listeners a sense of what that means? Because the word radical sometimes freaks people out. (laughs) Well, it's okay for people to be freaked out once in a while. Um, I think, I agree. (laughs) But for me, radical 
uh, is important as a word because it means going to the roots. And what we're trying to do with radical hospitality is to go to the roots of hospitality um, in the Christian tradition, certainly, but it's in all of the traditions or in all the religions of the world, really, this practice of hospitality. So radical hospitality is going to the roots of hospitality. And within the Christian tradition, at least, those roots are that we meet the living God as we welcome uh, strangers in our midst. And that's really uh, simply what we're doing. Well, why do you call it Mana House for those who are not, you know, reading their Bibles every few minutes? <laughs> well, Mana House uh, is derived from the Exodus story in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, after the Israelites uh, are freed from slavery by the mighty acts of God, uh, they have a, a period in which they're in the desert uh, for 40 years. Some people talk about this as they they got out of slavery in Egypt, but they had to get the slavery out of themselves as well. So the, the desert experience as, as a freeing experience, well, freedom is hard. Uh, it's hard to live into freedom. And one of the ways in which they had to live into freedom was to let go of the diet that they had gotten used to as slaves. And so as they're out in the desert, uh, they get hungry because they haven't switched diets yet. And God says to them, I will feed you uh, chicken sandwiches uh, or something close to chicken sandwiches, uh, quail and manna, uh, which people often think of as bread. But the actual Hebrew word manna means what is it? Uh, so right. each morning uh, they could collect as much manna as they needed, um, but they were not to store it. It's God's economy in which there's more than enough if we share. Uh, so they could, they could store for Sabbath, but not for anything else. So for us, uh, we want it to be manna house where people are sharing uh, with us so that we can share with others. And we try to make sure that things go out as quickly as they come in. So there's no hoarding. Uh, there's more than enough for everybody if, if we share, which is a basic principle of God's economy. That'll preach, Pete. <laughs> For those who have more than one storage bin in a house chucked full of things, yes, <laughs> um, enough for the day will preach. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do is enough for the day uh, as people come to us. And so what we're doing is making sure that people have what they need while they're with us. It's interesting when in one of your works, you, you talk about how you know, this is not as much as the the workers sharing the gospel or evangelizing. Or you know, typically Christians have this idea that we're we're doing missionary work, we're doing ministry um, as representatives of God to to do God's work, right? So there's this performative base aspect to it. But uh, in one of your pieces, you were asked the question, or the question was asked, "Do you evangelize the people you are serving?" And uh, I just would like for you to kind of address that and to help us understand really how how that makes sense in, in the work that you do at the Manor House. Great question. Yeah, we are not in the business of evangelizing in the traditional sense of uh, trying to save people. Um, rather, we're, we're grounded in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, 
where Jesus talks, uh, it's a parable of the last judgment, and he's talking about what are the criteria by which we are judged. And it boils down to whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. So there's a there's a message in that parable uh, where Jesus is identifying his very presence with the people who um, are being served. So those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are in need of clothing, uh, those who are imprisoned or sick. Um, so when we are welcoming our guests to Manor House, we uh, are welcoming the very presence of Christ. So we're the ones who are being evangelized uh, by our guests. We, we are the ones who need to learn the gospel from them. And they are great teachers. Uh, I actually had an interesting conversation sort of going the other direction. We were talking uh, myself with some other guests there about this whole notion of being evangelized when they go to places uh, that are offering them services. And one of the one of the men said to me, you know, they're always trying to get me baptized. Well, I've been baptized eight times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're more baptized than me. I've only been baptized once. So, but almost all of our guests who come, I mean, we're in Memphis, we're in the South. They, they've been to church. They know church quite well, and they don't need to be taught the gospel. They know the gospel. What they don't realize sometimes is they are great teachers of the gospel themselves. And part of that teaching that they do is that they invite us into the lives of people who are on the streets, into their lives, and they reveal to us what's really going on in our society underneath all the hype. And I'm kind of old school, so I, I really go with public enemy, and I say, don't believe the hype, right? You got to oh, go yeah. beneath the hype, because <laughs> uh, that's where the truth is. I mean, you say um, that your guests at Manor House those who are homeless, those who may not be, are living the best that they can under poverty and the violence of our economic and political and cultural systems. Now, I'm not sure during this present age with the bizarre manifestations of certain kinds of patriotism that the majority of the people in this country recognize the violence of our economic, political, and cultural systems. So, we don't really see our effects on on us or anyone else. What needs to change to wake us up? Well, we need to shorten the distance between us and the people who are suffering. And that's about relationship. That's about going to what a friend of mine calls the listening posts. Go to the jails, go to the courtrooms, go to the streets and listen and look and learn from the people who are vulnerable and the people who are suffering under the current systems. And they will tell their stories. And as you listen to their stories, you'll learn how the system is structured against them. From things as simple as the lack of um, public transportation that's reliable so that they can get from where they might be living to where they need to work. Uh, you know, in Memphis, for example, our public transportation is horrendously bad. It, people spend two to three hours each day just trying to get from where they live to where they work because the bus system's not set up. Uh, it's not extensive enough 
that it actually can serve people um, who rely upon it. And that's just one small example. I really agree with you that when you shorten the distance between uh, and, and take away this idea of classism and, and social economic status, when you just see the humanity in individuals, that's that's that cosmic connection. You see that person as an image bearer, a child of God, if you will, um, no longer a person who is homeless or a person who is down on their luck. Uh, you begin to see the commonalities in that. And so I, I totally agree that participating in this type of missionary work really allows you to eliminate those gaps that sometimes our, our society does have so strongly. Yeah, it does. And at the same time, um, I mean, I, I walk away from Mana House and I go home. And so I'm not experiencing, you know, the the suffering that our guests are experiencing. So there is this, you know, even for me sort of trying to lessen the gap, a gap remains. And I need to be, be attentive to that. And it's why I need to keep going back to Manor House, sort of like why I have to keep going back to church because I'm so uh, hard-hearted and thick-headed that I don't uh, get the message in just one visit. But I mean, I, one of our guests, um, I'll call him Moses, He's he's been on the streets for quite a while, and he knows the word of God inside and out. I mean, he sits at the table in our backyard and reads the Bible every day that he's there. And so I'll do is I go up to him and I say, hey, Moses, give me the word for today. And he'll share whatever it is that he's reading. And then we'll sit down and do Bible study together. Uh, and then other guests will join in. But but I'm not doing that Bible study because I'm trying to get Moses to understand the Bible. I'm doing that Bible study because I know I can only really understand the Bible through people who are really fully relying upon God, people who are on the streets and people who are therefore reading the text through the eyes of the kinds of people who were writing those texts in the first place. I think it's important to keep in mind that the New Testament and certainly large sections of of the Hebrew scriptures, so-called Old Testament, uh, are written by the people who are on the margins, or at least people who are identifying with people on the margins. And so I can't understand the Bible unless I'm reading it with people who are closer to those who wrote the Bible in the first place. I mean, for example, it was uh, revealed to me one day when Moses said to me, you know, we, we were reading some stuff in the Exodus. He says, you know, too many people identify with the Israelites. I said, what do you mean, Moses? He said, well, you know, like you, for example, you're more like Pharaoh. <laughs> and I said, you know, say a little more. He said, well, you're kind of, you know, you're in charge here, right? That's Pharaoh. The Israelites weren't in charge. So that perspective is like, oh, my God. Yeah, I've always read that Bible story as if I'm with the Israelites, right? I'm with the good guys. And and yet the reality is my social location, I'm a lot closer to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh uh, than to the Israelites. That that was revelatory to me and really helpful. Well, you, you speak to this brilliance um, that Moses, you know, brings to humanity, um, but there's often a, a negative stigma that is associated with with homelessness. There's often a kind of a, a particular perspective that our culture and our society has, uh, you know, around homelessness. Could you help our our, our guests, you know, better 
understand how to eliminate that stigma? How can that stigma be erased, right, based on your experience and, and some of your stories and narratives that you have? There's a friend of mine, Brad Watkins, who used to run the Mid-South Peace and Justice Center here in Memphis. And he said, the first thing to realize about people who are on the streets um, is that they're not from the planet homelessness, um, right? They're human beings, just like you and me. So there is that, that baseline of a shared humanity. Uh, at the same time, uh, what I need to do is to recognize that they've had different experiences than I have had. They, almost everybody who's on the streets grew up in poverty. Uh, when people say things like, there but for the grace of God go I, first of all, I hate that phrase. But second of all, it's just not true. Uh, there are very few people you'll ever meet on the streets who started out middle class or upper middle class, even further up. Almost everybody on the streets started in poverty. They had a very tenuous sort of safety net around them. And then something blew a hole through that safety net. It's often a death. Sometimes it's mental illness. Uh, sometimes it's some other form of abandonment that they get cut off from their community. And that's how they end up in homelessness. And the difficulty of getting out of homelessness is the reconstruction of some kind of community around people so that they have that support, that emotional, psychological, spiritual, and financial support to remain in housing. Uh, and of course, you can only remain in housing if you get into housing in the first place. And like, I get asked often like, well, what causes homelessness? Well, it's pretty simple. What causes homelessness is you don't have a home. Uh, and what causes that is that it's not affordable, uh, that we treat housing in this country as a commodity to be bought and sold rather than as a human right that's absolutely essential to our flourishing as human beings. And, you know, and that's what we do with everything in this capitalist society is we reduce everything to a commodity. Uh, including something as basic as housing, but certainly healthcare as well, education. I mean, it all gets exchanged on the marketplace rather than being seen as goods that we're developing together and that therefore should be shared in ways that are just. You say that when you're speaking about homelessness in public venues, you often get asked what to do when approached by panhandlers. <laughs> Can you give us a brief synopsis? You wrote an article, 10 Rules for Addressing Panhandlers. You don't have to give us all 10 unless you want to, but just give us an idea because that lurks in the back of folks' minds because that seems to be their primary direct contact with folks who are living on the streets. Yeah, I, I can't give all 10 because I don't remember them, but I do remember number one, which is treat people with respect. Um, so, and I learned this from somebody at Mana House. I said, you know, what does it feel like when people say no to you uh, when you're panhandling? He said, ah, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I feel like I'm making cold calls. Um, so if, you know, if somebody says yes, that's great. If they say no, that's fine too. And I said, well, what does bother you? He said, when they disrespect me, uh, when they treat me like I'm not even a human being. I said, so the first rule of working with somebody who is panhandling is to say hello how you doing? Uh, you know, maybe I can't, I can't help you today, maybe, but um, I'm still recognizing your humanity. Um, and for most panhandlers, that's going to be perfectly fine. 
you know, and part of what some people say, well, you know, I don't want to deal with panhandlers because they're aggressive. Uh, well, we usually have a kind of different views of what aggressiveness is depending on our own experiences. But I've known some panhandlers who are aggressive uh, in the sense of they're making me uncomfortable uh, by their physical stance towards me. And what I'll say to that person is, look, I, I just can't help you today. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep moving. And on the other hand, I keep a few bucks in my pocket uh, that I regard as a, my street tax money. And if somebody asks me for money and I still have my street tax money, I can give them a buck or a couple bucks. And But when I'm out, you know, if I carry five or $10 for street tax and the next person asks me for some money, I'll say, look, I'm, I'm tapped out. I've already given my street tax today. So um, maybe we can, I can hit you up next time. The other thing I also like to do is, and I can't remember if this is in the rules or not, um, but it's a, it's a kind of a manna thing to do. Somebody asks you for some change or, or a dollar or something like that, give them five or $10. Um, give more than you're asked for. And that will, be, that will lead to a pleasant exchange. Uh, that will lead to, wow, sometimes people try not to take that much and that's fine too. But, um, you know, really what, what I try to avoid is making, uh, this whole thing about panhandling as to like, I'm the ATM and the other person is just getting cash out of me. So what I want to do is somehow connect or try to make some kind of connection that's human humanizing between us. So that the person on the streets who's panhandling can see me as a human being and not just as a dispenser of cash. And I can see them as a human being and not just somebody who's asking me for money. Until I volunteered at Manor House years ago, um, I viewed, like a lot of people do, the label homeless as all-inclusive. And it took me a minute to understand that LGBTQ homeless folks experience even more discrimination than those who don't identify because of their sexuality. I think the listeners aren't, a lot of them may not be aware of that. Can you tell us about how that works? Yeah, homophobia, and that sort of um, hatred of the different is not isolated to people who are off the streets. So people who are on the streets, you know, they're, they're not from the planet homelessness. They have all the, picked up all the cultural cues that the rest of us are uh, affected and, and infected with. So there is, um, you know, among the kind of homeless community, sometimes there's, there's anti-gay, anti-lesbian, anti-transgender uh, emotions that are being expressed. Um, and sometimes that's done violently, uh, physical violence. Sometimes that's done more, more typically emotional violence through what's said, the words that are used. We decided at Manor House from the very beginning that we were going to be a place where all people will feel welcomed, uh, irregardless of sexuality. Um, and that's, that's made a huge difference for how our other guests have learned, I think, that we have that commitment. And so they'll, at least in the, within the confines of, of Manor House, practice that commitment as well. But I have to say, you know, I grew up in a Catholic church and uh, I picked up a lot of the sort of anti-homosexual stuff, not just there, but in other places, and one of the things I learned at Manor House was I was on the front porch one day and one of the guests asked me if I would pray for her. Um, and this, this was a person who was identifying as woman. 
Um, and I said, sure, I'd be happy to pray for you, even though I'm not very good at it. And the person said, well, um, you know, let, let me just say what I'm praying for. And I said, okay, go ahead. Tell me what I should pray for uh, with you. She said, I'm trying to find a church home. I want to pray for that I find a place in church where I'm welcomed. And I said, okay, we can pray about that. And then I can give you some suggestions. <laughs> but so we prayed. Um, and then at the end of the prayer, I, I asked her, I said, you know, can you tell me your story just a little bit? Um, you know, where you came from, how, how you end up on the streets, et cetera. And she said, well, I grew up in a minister's family. I'm a preacher's kid. And I got kicked out when I was about 16 and when I was coming out uh, as trans. And I said, well, that's pretty horrible. She says, yeah. I, I, and I, I started to hate myself. Um, and I ended up out on the streets. The only way I could survive was through prostitution. But the only way I could survive prostitution was by numbing myself with drugs. And so here I am. Um, now, the good news is that person did find a church where she is welcomed. Uh, and also, uh, we were able to get her connected with a great organization here in Memphis called Out Memphis, uh, who now has a wonderful residential center for uh, teenagers and slightly above teens who are out on the streets and need a safe place to live. So it's called Metamorphosis House, uh, and it's really a great ministry that that Out Memphis does. But yeah, it's a you know, there are shelters in Memphis who won't take people who are uh, trans or, or gay, lesbian. Um, and I always, I'm just kind of always frustrated and mystified by that. It's like, you know, you're supposed to be practicing the love of Christ. I don't remember Jesus excluding people because they belong to a certain group. Uh, his whole approach was to welcome everybody. And that's because... He was grounded in the love of God who welcomes everybody and who created and creates all of us and sustains all of us. And so we need to, as places of hospitality, we need to reflect uh, the love that we've been shown by God that's inclusive. I mean, if God judged me on my sins uh, or on my shortcomings or on my quirks and whatever, you know, I'd, I'd be in hell right now. <laughs> so would most of us. Yes. <laughs> and the other thing is that um, there's this presumption that there are free shelters and that in a lot of cities, it's not free. The cities that I've been, ex that I've had experience with, a lot of the shelters charge. Uh, there are some cities that will have a free public shelter, but you probably wouldn't want to stay there. Um, and, and the shelters that charge, I've asked, I mean, I, here in Memphis, I've asked the person, you know, why do you charge money? He says, well, we're trying to get people to be responsible. I said, well, doesn't that kind of, um, you know, that sort of ignores that they're not on the streets because they've been irresponsible. They're on the streets because they don't have a place to stay. Um, so maybe we should, should do, I mean, the federal government recognizes this with housing first policies. Get people off the streets into a stable, secure living arrangement, and then all the other things can be addressed if it's uh, psychological problems, if it's, um, you know, lack of a job, if it's addiction, you know, all those kinds of things that come about as a result of homelessness can be undone once a person has a place to live.
Is There Life After Doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. You speak about churches providing shelter, particularly in Memphis. I, I know there are churches that partner with organizations to provide shelter. I had the privilege of volunteering and, and actually leading a team to do that for a week in Minneapolis for a period of time. Can you speak to us about some of the limitations and some of the challenges that churches providing shelter uh, face in trying to address the, some of the homeless situations within, particularly within Memphis? In Memphis, the best organization that's doing shelters through churches is called Room in the Inn. Uh, I'm really proud it was started by a Memphis Theological Seminary graduate. Um, and it's and it's based on Room in the Inn, Nashville, uh, that was started by a Roman Catholic priest. So, but it's basically this, that Room in the Inn is a place where people can come um, and then be picked up by uh, churches that are offering hospitality within their own space. So there are 12 people typically who go to each church they're brought, they're put in a van or a bus or whatever and taken to the church uh, for a meal, for showers and a change of clothes and a place to sleep for the night. And then in the morning, a light breakfast and they're brought back to the central place of Room in the Inn. And it works really well because it's small. Uh, the worst shelters for anybody, whether they're the guests or the people staffing the shelter, are the big shelters. Because the bigger the shelter becomes, the less hospitality there is, because hospitality requires welcoming relationships, knowing people's names, listening to stories, um, just being human with each other. That's hospitality. And so the great thing about Room in the End Memphis is there's only 12 people uh, who go. And usually then the staff that's serving them, who are all volunteers at the church, there's probably six or eight of them as well. There may be two or three that sleep overnight. Um, I love the term. They're called overnight shepherds. Um, that, you know, that's when you can sit down and you can play a game of cards or watch television together or just talk. Um, that's when you get to know people and they get to know you. And that is how hospitality is mutually transformative. Those of who are offering hospitality, they get evangelized, like we talked about earlier. And those who are receiving the hospitality get their humanity reaffirmed, and it builds their hope and their own love of self so that they're more capable of receiving housing and sticking with it once they get into some housing. That's what churches are best at. Uh, what the church can do best is be a place of small, radical hospitality, uh, the churches by themselves are not going to solve the social problem of homelessness. That's a question. That's a justice issue in which the resources for housing need to be redistributed so that everybody has housing. Uh, we need to pull housing from just being a marketplace distribution to something that's also a justice place distribution. 
and that's going to require that's going to require uh, law. That requires po- social policy uh, to make that happen. And churches certainly can advocate and and not exactly lobby because then they wouldn't be a nonprofit, but they can advocate for those kind of policy changes. And it really adds to your credibility as an advocate when you actually know people who are experiencing homelessness. And you could say this is based upon our experience as the church offering hospitality. What people on the streets really need is housing. Churches don't have the resources to address a large social problem, uh, but they do have the people resources that can offer this hospitality. uh, And that could be a school sort of using a Benedictine phrase, it's a school for the Lord's service, uh, that they would be able then to become advocates for people on the streets. I'm thinking about the remark that your guest made about you being Pharaoh (laughs) and being in charge. And I'm remembering back when Manor House opened and you used to have a power to protect your guests from the rousting of the police which they were used to doing. And you would stop the officers who were, first of all, surprised that you were Anglo (laughs) (laughs) and that you were standing up for many African-American homeless folk who were in the house. Is it any better now with the police? It's gotten better around Manor House because they just don't mess with us. Uh, So they kind of learned their lesson. It took about eight years uh, before they stopped doing that. But I'll tell you what a real turning point was. It was a typical morning. Everybody's kind of doing doing their thing in terms of hospitality. And I was just inside the house. It was a warm day, so the windows were open. And just as I saw a police car pull into our driveway, which goes right to our backyard where, where most of our guests were, and I saw one of our guests, African-American man, standing in front of the police car with his hand up, you know, like stop in the name of love. Um <laughs> And the police officer was starting to get out of the car. And I heard this guest call for me. He says, Pete, Pete. So I I come out and the officer turns to me and I'm the white man coming on the scene. He says, are you in charge here? And I said, no, I'm not. And I pointed to the guest. I pointed to Anthony. I said, no, he's in charge. And Anthony looked at me like, what are you doing? And then he sort of stiffened up and he said, yes, I'm in charge and you're not allowed here. And the police officer was stunned. Like he was being told he's not allowed here. And so then I added, yeah, unless you're in hot pursuit or have a search warrant or something, you're not allowed on the property. Um, he says, well, I can go where I want. I said, no, not under the U.S. Constitution, you can't. Why don't you call your uh, superior officer and find out what your rights and responsibilities are as a police officer? And, I, and you will find out that you can't just come into my home Uh, and Anthony's home without our permission. So he calls up his supervisor, more cop cars are coming and Anthony's standing there. And each time they show up, he says to him, you're not allowed in here. Um, And finally the supervisor came up to me and said, "Um, why are you not letting us in? What are you hiding? I said, that's a police state mentality. Uh, We're not hiding anything. We just, this is a place of hospitality for people on the streets. And quite frankly, sir, they've had a lot of bad experiences with your officers and with people like you. And so we don't want you on the property. It's it's not conducive to hospitality. And I said, besides that, and I pointed to his ways, I said, you got a gun. 
and we don't allow any weapons uh, on the property. So if you want to put your weapons down and come in for a cup of coffee, you're welcome to do that. But you are not welcome to come in here and just look for look around and try to intimidate our guests. So they all loaded up and went away. Um, that was a success story. But we've had volunteers. We had some volunteers who were arrested right out in front of Manor House uh, when they started to use their phone cameras to record an arrest of a homeless person that was taking place. And they got arrested. Charges eventually were dropped, but they spent about 12 hours down at 201 Poplar at the jail before they got out. But I'll just say the Memphis police, it's been much better, I'd say, in the last four or five years. They leave us alone. I think they've finally taken the attitude that one of the things I had shared with them, I said, you know, your job's out there. And I pointed to the streets. Our job's in here. We're offering sanctuary. Uh, the two different jobs. Uh, hopefully you're doing yours professionally and with compassion. Uh, and we're going to try to do the same. So I want to tell one story about a police officer who did do something with professionalism and compassion. Police car pulled up in front of our house, uh, Manor House, one morning. And a uh, police officer got out, walked up to me because um, I look like Pharaoh. <laughs> and he uh, he said, um, I got one of your guests in the back of the squad car. And I picked him up over at one of the local hospitals. And I said, really, what's going on? He said, well, they wanted me to arrest him for trespassing. He had been sitting in the emergency room and wouldn't leave. So they had called me in. So I don't want to arrest him for trespassing. He just needs a shower and a change of clothes. Would you be willing to do that? Can I turn him over to you? And I said, well, yeah, wow. that'd be great. <laughs> and then the officer said, you know, arresting people is just a real pain in the ass. So I just don't want to, you know, I don't want to go downtown, fill out all the paperwork. You're doing me a favor. You're doing him a favor. And I said, we're happy to do you this favor. Um, and the guy came in and got a shower and a change of clothes, which he really needed. Wonderful. So that's a good police officer. Yeah. yeah. It's been cold in Memphis. I, I, I'm in Florida, so I'm really glad I'm not there because <laughs> it has been really cold. Um, and you wrote this article on your blog um, about a manor house guest who said to you, if I die tonight in the cold, no one will miss me. Do you want to speak a little bit about that incident and what inspired that blog? Yeah, it was. we have a little warming center in the backyard now. Uh, COVID, we're not all gathered in the house in the winter. We're kind of in larger space in the backyard. And we were, I was standing back there just talking with guests and listening to their stories. And um, this guest started to share with me what he was feeling. Um, and that's when he said, if I die tonight, nobody will miss me. Because what we're reflecting on is there had actually been a person on the streets who had frozen to death just about a week before uh, on the streets in Memphis. Uh, and, and I knew him a little bit. Um, and certainly the guests on the streets knew him much better. And so he was reflecting on that person's death. And, and it just struck me as it's heartbreaking to hear something like that. You know, if I die tonight, no one's going to miss me. Um, it's really saying I'm so cut off from community, from my fellow human beings that I'm totally isolated and alone. And so I just wanted to, you know, express my own connection with that person and say, you know, 
you're not going to die, first of all. We're just not going to let you die tonight, uh, if at all possible. But secondly, if you did die, uh, we're still here. We're going to remember you. We're going to lift you up in prayer. And I said, you've been here for memorial services. Um, we, we remember those who have died. Uh, and we remember people with fondness um, and with sadness. I said, but don't die tonight. Um, let's get you into a shelter and uh, make sure that you stay warm. But it really, it's the pathos of, of homelessness, you know, it's that, that deep suffering uh, that people on the streets have. And again, that's a, you know, I'd, I've not experienced that because I've never been homeless. I've spent 24 hours out on the streets, you know, to, and that's really been great because people around the streets then provide me with hospitality and they protect me as we go through 24 hours on the streets. But that's just such a teeny tiny little taste. It's not even anywhere near the reality of, I don't have any place to stay tonight, uh, or I'm gonna sleep under this bridge tonight, or I'm gonna get into this abandoned building and try to stay warm, start a fire, and hope that the whole building doesn't go up in flames. You know, I, I don't know that experience. I can just hear the stories. And then what I'm trying to do in my blog, really uh, radical hospitality, uh, is to share those stories so that people who see themselves as not having a voice, that their voice can be heard. You touch hearts, and not only that, but there is a way in which the gospel is lived out in an everyday kind of way, without platitudes, without evangelical musings. Um, you could have said to that gentleman, oh, but God is waiting for you in heaven and you have a white robe, but you didn't. You said, we'll miss you. And that's something that's very real, and I admire that about you. And just to, to let the audience know that it's not just homelessness and education that you do, but also amazing work around farming, food, and faith. Is this from your roots in Minnesota? <laughs> Maybe it is a little bit. I had an uncle who was a farmer, and my parents would farm us out to him for a few weeks each summer. Uh, to get a break. You know, my, my parents, God bless them, they had six children and uh, five of them were boys. So uh, they'd send us, my bro older brother Steve and myself would get farmed out to my uncle Everett, not Clara's farm. It's a small farm, 150 acre dairy farm in Southern Minnesota. We loved it. Uh, we loved going out there. We'd work in the morning and then we'd play out in the fields and the, the creek that was nearby in the afternoons. But um, I can't really claim that I have much in the way of farming roots other than that. I'll tell you how this happened is how this developed was I was teaching a course at Memphis Theological Seminary called The Church's Call to Radical Hospitality. And I was standing with one of the students in the backyard at Manor House is the end of the week intensive. And I said, so, you know, what do you think? How'd the course go to you, for you? And he goes, well, there's a great course. I really loved it, but I'm not really sure how it translates to my context. So, well, what is your context? He says, well, I'm, I'm going to pastor at a small church out in the country. It's got, we had about 35 members and, you know, most of them are farmers. And so, and I was new at the seminary and I said, well, isn't there a course on rural ministry? No, there's no course on rural ministry. Um, so I went to the seminary administration. Uh, you were gone by then, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, 
you know, why is there not a course on rural ministry? They said, well, there's nobody to teach it. Uh, this is so typical of academics, right? right. We're such urban people. Um, and if we do have country roots, we try to get rid of them. We go and become big shots with PhDs. So I knew I couldn't teach a course on rural ministry, but I could teach a course on maybe the ethics of food production and distribution. And then I'll tack on at the end, I'll get some rural ministers to come in and talk about rural ministry. So that was the first time I offered the class. And I like alliteration, so I called it Farming, Food, and Faith. Well, out of that class being offered numerous times, eventually came our Doctor of Ministry program in land, food, and faith formation, which is really exploring where students explore the connections between the urban and the rural. You know, urban places can't survive without rural places, and rural places really need urban places too. And the church is an institution that transcends both of those, right? We have churches in rural areas. We have churches in urban areas. What if churches learned how to be in cooperation with each other, relationship with each other across those boundaries so that the urban areas can be transformed and the rural areas can be transformed, that people can be enlivened in both contexts? And that's what we're trying to do uh, with the DMIN program. I think we're the only one in the country that's really looking directly at this issue right now of land, food, and faith formation. How's, how's faith connected to uh, what we do with the land and how the land produces food, but how do we eat? You know, what kind of food are we producing? And how is all that tied into rural and urban contexts and our faith communities? So it all came out of a student uh, sharing his truth with me and me being naive enough to think I might be able to teach something about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I learned more from the students, I think, than I taught. Yes. Where do you see yourself five, ten years from now? Besides retired <laughs> from the seminary. Um, I mean, I see myself doing the same work. This is my vocation. Uh, my vocation is to hospitality. Uh, and my vocation is to trying to build relationships between people who see themselves as different from each other or disconnected. So I think I'll stay involved somewhat with the land, food, and faith formation type work. Um, I'll definitely be connected with Manor House, and I'll continue with various forms of social justice advocacy. You know, I've been very much involved with the uh, abolitionist movement about the death penalty here in Tennessee. Um, Hopefully in 10 years, we won't have a death penalty in Tennessee, but uh, who knows? Um, but though that kind of work, um, trying to listen to folks who have something important to say about what's going on in our society, and then working with them uh, to try to change the, the injustices that exist. And, you know, and that's a job that never stops because we're well short of the kingdom of God. So uh, sure are. <laughs> yep. Unless we Jesus sure comes are. back, you know, in 10 years, <laughs> takes care of the rest. Uh, we'll probably be doing the same kind of work. May it be so. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about your grandmother's outreach to the homeless? Yeah, this was something I found out about my grandmother after she had died. Um, it's really shortly after we started Mana House. Uh, my mom was talking with me. And she said, well, you know, uh, your grandmother welcomed people who were what we would call homeless now uh, to our house. And I said, really? I'd never heard that before. 
And she said, yeah, well, you know, grandma's house, as you remember, was by the railroad tracks. And during the Great Depression and really before and even after that, uh, people would be coming through on the on riding the rails and she would welcome them to have a meal um, off her back steps. And so her the house really got to be noted for a place of hospitality and actually was marked uh, by people passing through that this was a safe house. This was a sanctuary house that you could count on the person here to give you a meal, no questions asked. And I thought, wow, that's amazing that my grandmother uh, had done that work. I had no idea, though I really wasn't surprised. She was always a very hospitable person to us kids on the way to the swimming pool uh, down the street from where she lived. We could always stop in for a snack going and coming, but I had no idea she had been serving people who, you know, hobos off of the rail line there for I don't know how long, as long as people came through on the rails, I guess. Could you also tell us about being a Benedictine monk and living those values out in community? So, yeah, I was a Benedictine monk a long time ago. Uh, it was when I was fresh out of college, um, 40 some years ago. But when I joined the uh, Benedictine Monastery, St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota, uh, and I had gone to St. John's University as an undergrad. So I knew the monks. I knew a, a number of the monks. And what attracted me to the monastic life uh, at that time was the, the discipline and the, and the schedule of prayer and work. Um, and Benedictine, one of their mottos is ora et labora, prayer and work. Um, and I liked the structure. and I loved the, the sense of being in this spiritual journey uh, with others in community that it wasn't just focused on one's own self, but that by being in a community of persons who are uh, devoted to the spiritual life, uh, we can help each other along the way. And sometimes that help is almost negative, like learning how to put up with people that you don't particularly like uh, and living with them in community. But, you know, what, what stuck with me over all these years is that regular time for prayer. Um, I think it's important to start the day in prayer, uh, have some times during the day in which the day is sort of interrupted by prayer, um, and then prayer um, in the evening as one is in ending the day. That has stuck with me, and it's been an important part of hospitality that before uh, we open uh, I always make sure that I have some time for prayer. Um, it just so happens that the monks of St. John's pray at seven o'clock in the morning. They're very laid back and, and we happen to open at eight o'clock. So I usually get to Mana House at about seven o'clock in the morning. And that's when I uh, do my morning prayer. Um, and so that's been important for me. And then the, the, the rule of St. Benedict, which is just, masterful, but there's chapter 53 in the rule is on the reception of guests. And that chapter begins with uh, that all guests are to be welcomed as Christ. That's been a central um, conviction on the part of we who run Mana House, that the guests who come are the very presence of Christ. So I think that's 
stuck with me all these years as well. Say too, when I when I first really got involved with work of hospitality is with the open door community in Atlanta. And I'll never forget the first night I was there and I was assigned to a room. It was down in the basement of the of this large house. And it was a very small room. And I thought, I've come back to the monastery. Um, this simple room and the work of hospitality and regular life of prayer in community, that's all uh, that's all Benedictine monasticism again. So not surprising, Dorothy Day, who was one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, was good friends with uh, a number of Benedictine monks, including Virgil Michael, who was a Benedictine monk at St. John's Abbey. Uh, I never knew him. He was dead long before I joined the monastery. But he was a uh, really a pioneer in liturgical reform within the Catholic church, especially in the United States. And I think it's, and he saw the connection between liturgy of the hours, uh, Eucharist and the offering of hospitality. I think he saw that in large part because he was a Benedictine. Your work is truly something that we all should mirror. Uh, it's truly an inspiration and a model uh, to how to live a life of compassion, to seek justice, to seek reconciliation within various aspects of our culture and our lives. So I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you for having me on here. And, you know, when somebody says something like that, I'm a little afraid uh, that people listening might think, oh, he's kind of extraordinary. Really, what, what Mana House is, is ordinary people recognizing that they can do extraordinary things when they come together in community. Um, so Mana House is not about me. Um, it's, it's about the people from the streets and from our house who have come together and said, let's create a place in which we can all be welcomed together. And so, and that's what we need more of, right? In our society is, is places where people who are different from each other can find a space together and say, let's just sit down and have conversation and, and see what happens. And um, that that's all we've done. And, and we're small. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from the Catholic Worker Movement is to start small and stay small. So some people say, well, I can't do this because, you know, we don't have the resources or don't have the time. We're all volunteers. There's no paid staff at Mana House. We're only open two mornings a week and then one afternoon for, for a meal. So we're not a big operation. And I think that's important to say, look, hospitality is about small, consistent action, not big flash in the pan stuff. That's what we try to do, small, consistent welcoming of people and letting ourselves be welcomed as well. Thank you for your dedication and for your friendship, Pete. Sure. Thank you, Barbara. So good to have you. It's all your fault that I'm at the seminary, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a wonderful <laughs> thing that is. <laughs> be blessed. I feel very blessed. It's great having this conversation with you. It's, it's enlivening to be asked questions and to get to reflect together with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'd like to leave you with the reflection from this episode. There is an underlying theme in that conversation, even his story about Moses, of this concept of radical hospitality. Radical hospitality, as he defined, is going to the root of the meaning of hospitality, meeting people in the midst and at the point 
of their suffering. This concept of being with, almost an idea of incarnation, if you will, uh, just being present, not only in his stories, but in the action behind the mission behind Manor House, this concept of radical hospitality. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, Manor, God giving you just enough for today. I don't know. I'm sort of used to getting a shopping bag and filling it full so you have some left over for tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, the question is, I guess, can we really live by faith? Yeah. Can we really accept what God has for us for this moment? Yeah, yeah. And not worry about tomorrow? Yeah. That is powerful because uh, the concept manah, some Hebrew scholars would interpret that as what is it or it is what it is or it is whatever you need it to be. It is sufficient. As you indicated, it is more than enough. And so this idea of faith, as you interjected there, is the ability to accept that what you have is more than enough, that it is fully sufficient. Oftentimes when we're out there trying to serve others, we find that there is a reciprocity that those who are suffering, that we are trying to alleviate suffering, somehow miraculously become a healing balm in, even in our own lives. And he yeah. speaks about that with Moses in the story of Moses, how Moses' wisdom and Moses' maturity became such a presence that brought some level of maturity and wisdom and stability, even in his own life, as the leader of Manor House. To be present with the homeless, even if you don't have the change to give, to smile, to say hello, how you doing? Yeah. Enough yeah. for today. Yeah. And so a question maybe we could present to our listeners is, how do you or how do we shorten the gap between us and the people within our lives who are suffering? Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.